Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's children said, Amen. So we begin this sermon series on the theme of BUMC. And as we do that, we'll come into our Wesleyan heritage again. As we look at our three simple rules that John Wesley offered for the Methodist societies. He gave the societies a set of real-world guidelines to, to help them apply their faith to their everyday lives. They're often called the general rules of united societies. And as I mentioned, they're boiled down to three simple ones. Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Clearly, John Wesley appears to have taken what Jesus gave to all of us, the great commandments about loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and, and told the people, the Methodists, if you want to love God and neighbor here, use these three rules. Use these three rules. In his day, the world was rapidly changing. The economy was changing. Social structures were changing. Governments were changing. And those three simple rules were part of what helped the early Methodist societies and the people stay grounded in their faith in the midst of all of that craziness. And we know, as we look around, as we read, as we see, the world we live in is rapidly changing. And I think these three simple rules are still amazingly relevant to our faith today. So we start looking at the first one and what it means for us as Methodists to do no harm. We are the people who do no harm. That sounds pretty easy, right? Do no harm. Don't hurt anybody. Easy enough, even children can understand it. Keep your hands to yourself. Don't hurt one another. But yet that rule is surprisingly deceitful. It's easy to proclaim it to one another, do no harm. I mean, just avoid hurting each other. One book I read said, if you want to love God, don't be a jerk. <laughs> well, in a sense, don't hurt each other. Don't be a jerk. Imagine shouting out the car window to your child as you're dropping them off at school. Make good choices today. That's certainly appropriate. But just saying it and them hearing it is not necessarily transforming. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul has a, his own list of what's harmful. Paul describes them as acts with selfish motives. Moral corruption, idolatry, drug use, hate, fighting, rage, group rivalry, jealousy, drunkenness, obsession. This isn't that much different from the list that John Wesley put together of doing no harm. Although Wesley's is a bit longer. And I'm being kind by saying a bit longer. The list he wrote was written in 1739 as he encouraged people to follow these rules, especially do no harm. He wrote that in order to do no harm, to avoid evil of any kind, we should avoid doing certain things, especially that which is most generally practiced. And he listed them, such as taking God's name in vain, profaning the day of the Lord by or doing ordinary work or by selling or buying, drunkenness as well as buying or selling liquor, and then he adds a little kind of asterisk, if you will, unless an extreme necessity. I'm not sure what that means by an extreme necessity when it comes to alcohol. Maybe one day I'll get a chance to ask him that. But one of the other things he put down was slaveholding, as well as buying or selling slaves. He wrote that 126 years before the slaves were freed. Fighting, quarreling, or returning evil for evil, he said, buying or selling goods that have no paid duty, giving or taking things with interest, 
uncharitable conversation, particularly speaking ill of magistrates or ministers, doing to others what we wouldn't want them to do to us, doing what we know is not for the glory of God, wearing expensive jewelry or clothes, singing songs or reading books which do not tend to the love of God, needless self-indulgence, laying up treasures on the earth, borrowing without the probability of paying for what you borrowed. Those are his, his list. Some of them, as you heard them, you think, oh, that's pretty obvious, I wouldn't do that. Others may make you feel a bit defensive. I mean, just sit with these for a moment. We're good at deceiving ourselves about what is harmful and what is not. That list from Wesley might be outdated to our own hearing, but consider how doing these kinds of things did harm. Some were harming the relationship with God. Others were harming relationships with other people. And some of them were doing harm to both. When we choose to not harm, we can find a good and solid place that we can stand and seek a way forward in our faithfulness in life, our faithfulness to God. And why don't we do that? Well, first, the rule is misunderstood, and we often think it's too simple, it's too easy. But it really stems us not following it from a lack of self-discipline and even a lack of faith in God who empowers us, who leads us, who guides us. The second reason we choose not to follow it is this step is because we've bound ourselves to certain beliefs about God and about each other rather than binding ourselves wholly to Christ. In a sense, what we're doing is mixing the viewpoints of what we believe in the world and what we believe about Jesus, and we put them together, and then our faith is weakened. The fact is, doing no harm is not just avoiding behaviors. It's actually something we do. It's active. It's an awareness and a response to systems and attitudes that inflict harm on a regular basis without thought, without regret. As Wesley was looking around in 18th century England, he saw more and more harm being done to the poor. It was done by those with power, with wealth, with influence. They were taking advantage of unskilled workers, spending money on luxuries when that money could have easily gone to the poor. We need to ask ourselves what abuse we're contributing to. How do we shop and how we eat and move about in the world? What are we doing that's contributing to that harm? Who's being harmed so we can enjoy the pleasures of the world around us? Talk about a sobering insight in our faith. What would it look like to live in such a way that we not only do no harm passively, but do no harm actively in order to change the world? What about choosing to not say the angry words to your spouse or your boss or your child, knowing that right then and there, saying those words would make you feel really good? What about choosing to change your habits so that your lifestyle doesn't harm the earth? Or about choosing to rest instead of working on the Sabbath? That way you can remember that you are not God and the world does not revolve around you or depend on you. What about choosing to not buy those things you can't afford or are not necessary to your everyday life so that you're not in debt? And in not buying those items, switch your allegiance to who and what is important around you. What about choosing to see who is being harmed in the world by the systems that are in place and to let go of our silence around those systems? Too often we, we decide to tune all of it out because people will talk about it and we get, 
to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to hear it anymore. Often raising awareness about making a living wage, disparity of pay between men and women, and, and racism have been met with the determination to avoid the conversation at all costs. I realize what I'm sharing is overwhelming. So let's have a starting point. Where do we start? So we look at the scripture that Nancy read about not doing harm to our neighbor who is trusting us. Proverbs is a really interesting read. Clearly, there's a lot of simplicity in Proverbs, just like the general rule of, of doing no harm. To give the advice that we read in Proverbs 3, 29 to 30, we need some context. We have to go back to the very beginning of that chapter because we need to understand the why we don't want to harm our neighbor. We read and we hear in the very beginning, My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and abundant welfare, they will give you. Interesting words, for length of days. Is that a promise of longevity? That if we, what, don't forget the teaching, keep the commandments, then we'll have longer days? That would be great, wouldn't it? Longer days, many more years. That's a message I'm sure would sell out there in the world today. Except we know it isn't true, right? Or it isn't true in the way we might first think of it as true. You and I have been to funerals and sat with families as the days of their loved ones slipped away. And we've come to know that their days weren't any longer than yours or anybody else's, including those who wouldn't know a commandment if they fell over it. So what does that mean then? If it isn't about giving you and I more hours in a day or more years in a life, then, then what's all this promising? Why do we have to act this way about our neighbors? Most of the commentaries say that it's a promise of eternity. It's about heaven, they argue. It's about the kingdom of God and the invitation to, to live there forever. I mean, who could argue with that? I mean, why would you want to argue with that? That's a promise that has sustained God's people for centuries. The idea that eternity in heaven, however, we want to depict that, that realm is an offer to those who keep the commandments has invited people to live godly lives throughout the centuries. Proverbs is about wisdom, divine or holy wisdom, that it shifts the focus from the dog-eat-dog, just-getting-by-only-in-it-for-myself kind of wisdom out there today to a wisdom that's something higher, something deeper, something broader than what we sometimes settle for out there in the world. The ability to surrender to a, a higher presence, to set ourselves aside and seek the good of all people, or at least some people, is indeed keeping with God's commandments. And the motivation of heaven it has been and always will be a powerful one. Yet I'm not sure that Proverbs chapter 3 is talking about heaven. It seems much more about this life, this world, this, this walk of faith that we're on than it does about someday somewhere that hasn't come yet. The result of following this kind of wisdom, of keeping these commandments, is that we will become the people of God and our reputation will precede us as people of God. That's not a, a heavenly quality. That's, that's a now, right now kind of thing. 
We want to find favor with God. We want to find favor with people. We want to be known by God and people. I mean, we all do. The other promise is that we will find paths that are straight. God will make them straight for us. But that doesn't mean that God will run interference for us, keeping the bad things out of the way, smoothing out the bumps, keeping the corners, the intersections to a bare minimum. That, that's not the promise. Rather, when we choose to walk in the wisdom of God instead of our own wisdom, we will find some contentment. We'll find joy even even in the bumpy parts of our life, even as we stand at the intersections agonizing, which way are we going to go next? The joy is in our attempt to honor God. The joy is in the desire to be where God is, to walk in God's ways, to be filled up with the fullness of God. By filling ourselves up with God's fullness, Proverbs tells us that we can wrap ourselves in loyalty and faithfulness, to mark ourselves as those who love as God loves. The Hebrew word hesed means loyalty. And it's sometimes translated as steadfast love. And that is one of God's characteristics. Faithfulness is another one. So we wrap ourselves in loyalty or steadfast love and faithfulness. And we put that around us. We put that in our hearts. And through these these attributes of God, we can see God. We can see God in what we say and how we do it, how we live life each day and each hour of the day. We will not have our hours and days filled with the presence of God or the awareness of God unless we take each hour as an opportunity to acknowledge God and God's claim on us, to put God's praise on our lips, to put God's joy in our heart, so maybe the promise is not for more hours in the day to fill, but for more fullness for the hours that we do have, for the days that we have. Maybe the promise isn't an endless number of years in our life, but a life full of years and of endless presence and joy with God. The abundance promised in the beginning of Proverbs chapter 3 isn't about safety or security or, or being comforted, but about sustaining presence of God in everything that we're doing in all of our living, and all of our being. Our souls are cared for because we live in love. We live in God's presence. We, we live in that joy. And in the end, then, doing no harm is about living in and expressing what it means to live in the kingdom, within the family of God, within a place of fellowship and a place of connection. Not doing harm is about acknowledging that Anyone that would cause harm to or anyone that would allow to, to be continuing to harm people also harms us, our family, our own very body. Harm done to any is harm done to ourselves, to the wholeness we seek as a community. As a diverse group of God's people, we as United Methodists are a multicultural and interwoven global community. As a diverse people, we need to realize the unintentional harm done to our communities, and especially those who are on the margins, who are often ignored and overlooked, like the abused, the forgotten, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the mentally ill, the addicted. We need to seek justice when we see how our own actions may harm others. We as Methodists are a resilient people as well who do our best to keep our focus on Jesus even in the midst of change, even in the midst of difficulties. 
We are to be challenged by our faith to see all the people. There's nothing passive about this rule of doing no harm. We are called to seek out ways to end that harm that is caused to God's people for whatever reason. The harm caused to all creation for whatever reason. God calls us to an attentiveness that's beyond any of us individually, but certainly is within the realm of opportunity and possibility for all of us, collectively, to be empowered and equipped by the Spirit to change the world around us, to be alive every hour of every day for the length of days that we are given, to actively do no harm, not just passively. I read a story about a young woman who was being interviewed for a teaching position in first grade. She had prepped for it for weeks. She was ready for any and every question that they might ask except the one that I ended up asking. She was asked, what are three things you would never do as a teacher? When she spoke with her family, she told them what the answers were that she gave, and she said, I told them, try never to model behavior that I don't see in children. Never come to school unprepared, and never tell a child they cannot learn. In thinking about doing no harm, we know that there are things we're not going to do to begin with. But what three things would you never do so that you're not doing harm? What three things would you never do so that you do no harm? And then think about this. What three things would I do? What three things would I do to actively make sure that other people are not being harmed by what's going on around me? What three things would I do actively so that other people are not harmed around me? I mean, we could talk about this rule and give some far-fetched answers, like I will never drive 100 miles an hour on the turnpike or something like that, which I would hope you would never do. But if we are who we say we are, We are not only disciples of Jesus Christ, we are also people who actively, as well as passively, do no harm. We're there to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God in all that we say and all that we do. Again, what three things would you never do so that you're not harming people? What things would you do to fight the harm that's being done in the world today? Pray about that this week. Amen. Thank you.